Welcome back to our study of the Psalms. We are looking at Psalm 15 today, a very brief psalm, just a few verses, five verses in fact. And it begins, it's a psalm of David, and it begins with an important question. He says, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? So what David is asking is, who is fit, who's allowed, who's able to dwell in God's presence? So when he mentions, you know, who shall sojourn in your tent, he probably has in mind there the tabernacle, right? The dwelling place of God that um, was constructed in the days of Moses, and it was meant to be uh, portable, collapsible, movable. And so it was a tent. Later, of course, that tent was replaced by the temple, which David's son Solomon built. But in David's day, it was a tent uh, in which God dwelt in the midst of his people. And so David's asking, who's allowed to, to live there, be there, stay there? Um, who shall dwell on your holy hill? Right? That's the question that he's asking. And then most of the rest of the psalm is answering that question. So verse 2, he says, He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. So first of all, when he says uh, the one who walks blamelessly, uh, blameless in the Bible does not mean sinless. You can be a blameless person, but none of us is a sinless person, right? Only Jesus is perfect and sinless, but a godly person is a blameless person. A blameless person is someone who's seeking to honor God with their life. They're seeking to walk in God's ways. And, and if you were to observe their life and watch them, there's no glaring, obvious, uh, you know, major sin that's going on. You know they're not perfect. You know that they sin. But still, when you look at the, the habit of their life, they're godly people. They're Christ-like people. Um, that's the kind of person that David is talking about. Somebody who's Life is, um, you know, missing any, uh, you know, grievous, glaring, uh, consistent sin, um, and they, they're, they're godly people, right? Um, so many of the of the um, characters in the Bible that are godly people, right? They would be, uh, they would fit this category of blameless, right? At least at different periods of their life. Um, if I'm not mistaken, in Luke chapter 1, uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth are referred to as people who are blameless or walking blamelessly. Again, doesn't mean they're sinless, right? But um, the point of mentioning that there is that the fact that Elizabeth was barren um, until the angel you know, told Zechariah that she was going to have a son who uh, was going to be John the Baptist. Um, up until that point, she had been barren, and that was not a result of anything wrong they had done. It was not a result of their sin because they were blameless people. They were godly people, not sinless, not perfect, right? But they weren't, you know, living in rebellion against God and, and those kind of things. So that's what he means by blameless. He says, also this per is someone who does what is right, right? So they, they're doing what God says. They're seeking to follow God's will, God's instructions in the word. Um, and then he says, this person speaks truth in his heart. Now, in Psalm 14, we notice that it said, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. And I believe we talked about the fact that when it says the fool says in his heart, it's not that he's making a, a public declaration that there is no God, professing himself to be an atheist. Uh, instead, he's saying to himself, he's saying in his heart, there is no God. And he's doing that to make himself feel comfortable 
with the sinful things that he's doing. Because if there's not a God that he has to give an account to, then, you know, he doesn't have to worry about the consequences of his sin, at least not in terms of facing God's judgment and being accountable to him. So when it says that this person in Psalm 15, this godly person, speaks the truth in his heart, it's saying that he's telling himself the truth. He's reminding himself of what's true, right? That there is a God that he will have to give an account to, and that that God loves him, and that God uh, wants what is best for him. When God says, don't do this, it's not because uh, God is trying to, you know, take away joy. It's because he's uh, trying to uh, lead us into true joy. He knows what's best for us. So he speaks the truth in his heart. And then verse three, he says, who does not slander with his tongue. So this is someone who's not tearing people down with their words and, you know, saying false things about them to make people think ill of them. Uh, he says he does no evil to his neighbor. So he's, he's not seeking to harm anyone. Right. He's he in fact, he does the opposite. Right. He's loving his neighbor. He's seeking to do what's right. Uh, so he does no evil to his neighbor. And then it says, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. Now, uh, this I had a little a little bit of uh, trouble getting my mind around. What exactly does that mean? How do I explain that? Um, and I was helped, as I often am, um, by Jim Hamilton's commentary on the book of Psalms, I, I consult that weekly, um, but sometimes something really stands out that uh, explains something that I wasn't able to explain that I want to share with you. So that's, that's what happened this time. Um, and so here, here's what he says about this phrase, uh, does not take up a reproach against his friend. He says, if we see our neighbors do something worthy of reproach, and recognize in ourselves the inclination to do the same thing. We are less likely to reproach and more likely to admonish with gentle love. So in other words, what he's saying is, um, when this, this man that doesn't take up a reproach against his friend, what it means is uh, he doesn't sort of pile on against his friend and, and talk about how terrible he is or how terrible this thing is that he's done. And one of the ways we keep ourselves from doing that, uh, he's saying, is that um, if we see somebody do something that they shouldn't have done, is wrong, is sinful, um, but we are aware that we could easily do the same thing. Uh, we could be tempted the same way. We could fall into the same sin. Then instead of piling on and talking about how terrible they are, that instead we are more inclined to be gentle and uh, admonish, encourage, you know, help, uh, not encourage in their sin, of course, but encourage them to turn from that sin and turn back to God's ways uh, and do that with humility and gentleness uh, because we know next time it could be us, right? So this is somebody who doesn't, um, he's not, again, not piling on uh, against his friend, uh, then he says in verse 4, In whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. Now this one also I had a little bit of trouble with because when I read that first part, In whose eyes a vile person is despised, I think of um, despising mainly in uh, sort of emotional terms. Like you, you hate that person. You despise that person. You look down on that person. You, you know, those kinds of things. And 
I was trying to think through how do we square that with what Jesus says about um, loving your enemies and, and praying even for those who persecute you. Um, how do we square that with despising someone? Um, but one of the things that helped me understand what he's talking about here is there's this statement comes with a pair that is its opposite, right? It comes in a pair, right? The first half of that pair is in whose eyes a vile person is despised. The second half is, but who honors those who fear the Lord. So in other words, the, what he's saying is what kind of person do you honor and esteem and promote and look up to and commend and things like that? Is it somebody who's doing things that are vile and worthy of being despised? Or is it the kind of person who's doing things that are godly and honorable? The kind of person who fears the Lord. So part of what's going on is it's just a stark contrast, right? Uh, about who do you admire, honor, look up to, uh, and those kinds of things. Um, the other thing is, and here, here again, um, Hamilton helped me with this. This is what he says about this phrase uh, in his commentary. He says, this is not a cruel rejection. Talking about despising the vile person. This is not a cruel rejection, but a righteous response to unrepentant wickedness. And he goes on to say, sometimes wicked people are styled as bold, courageous, and interesting, while holy people are seen as restrictive, dour, and boring. If the Lord is our priority, he says, then holy people who fear God will be interesting, courageous, and exciting. So it's really about the kind of person that you esteem, that you admire, that you're interested in. And he's not talking about just any and every kind of ungodly person, right? He's talking about those uh, who are vile, who do terrible, immoral, disturbing, ungodly awful things, right? And many times in our own culture, the kind of person who does that is esteemed, is honored, is admired, like Hamilton was talking about. But a godly person is going to admire and honor those who fear God, not those who uh, are involved in all kinds of vile and dark and wicked things, right? And then he says um, at the end of verse four, who swears to his own hurt, and does not change. So in other words, you sign your name name to something, you follow through with it. Even if it's painful, even if it's inconvenient, even if you change your mind, want to change your mind and wish you could get out of it, you stick with it because that's what you signed your name to. That's what you swore. That's what you promised. Uh, you, you do what you said you were going to do. Um, then uh, verse 5, He who does not put out his money at interest... Right now, I don't think that's a blanket, um, you know, restriction on never earning interest on your money ever. In fact, Jesus, uh, in the parable of the talents, uh, if I'm not mistaken, he talks about how uh, the the servant who received the talent, or the person who received the talent, and and was afraid and buried it. Um, if I remember correctly, Jesus says to him, "You could have at least put that talent in the bank and earned interest, right? So I would at least have the interest back." Uh, but what uh, it likely is uh, referring to, and, and Hamilton mentions this as well, is uh, these um, prohibitions in the Old Testament. Uh, in fact, I might have got this from Hamilton. These prohibitions in the Old Testament against um, the Israelites lending money at interest among themselves. 
Uh, and I think in particular, it's, it's meant uh, to protect the poor, right? Those who don't have uh, the means to sustain and support themselves. And then sometimes people come along and say, well, I'll earn you money. I'll, I'll lend you money, but you know, at 20% or something. And so they're taking advantage of the poor and charging exorbitant interest. Um, and uh, that's, that's an, not a godly thing to do, right? So uh, then he says um, in the middle of verse five, and does not take a bribe against the innocent. So now again, we're dealing with money, but here it's, uh, this person is not going to pervert justice in order to make money. He's not going to take a bribe so that, you know, the case comes out the wrong way and the innocent person has to suffer. That that this kind of person is not going to do that. And so finally he says at the end of the verse, he who does these things shall never be moved. Right, so this is um, in some ways similar to what Psalm 1 said about the, the blessed man that He's like a tree planted by streams of water. A tree is stable, fruitful, right? It's not going anywhere. He says this kind of person is not going to be moved, right? He's staying there. He's stable. Um, and it even, uh, you know, some of the, what he's saying here goes back to the beginning of that psalm, Psalm 1, where blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. That's not far off from how this person is being described here in Psalm 15. Now, how do we connect this to Jesus? And this is the most encouraging part, because it's very possible by this point you're thinking, wow, I, I don't measure up to this description in Psalm 15. Uh, maybe on my best days I get closer than some other days, but I know that I fall short of this. Uh, and that's true of all of us, right? Um, no one fits this description as well as Jesus. But nobody fits this description as well as Jesus. In Jesus' case, he's not merely blameless. He is sinless. He is perfect. Uh, and he um, perfectly fits the description of this godly person who is fit to dwell in God's presence. And the good news for, uh, for us is that Jesus has entered into God's heavenly presence on our behalf. Right? Hebrews talks about this in Hebrews chapter 9. For example, uh, beginning in verse 11, it says, When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, remember David's talking about that earthly tent, the tabernacle where God's presence dwelt. Hebrews says, uh, Through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of his creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, Thus securing, for, uh, thus securing an eternal redemption. So Jesus has entered God's heavenly tabernacle, his heavenly dwelling place, uh, to secure our salvation, our eternal redemption. And then later in Hebrews 9, verse 24, it says, Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. So we may not be fit and are not fit to dwell in God's presence on our own, but Jesus, through his death and resurrection, has made us fit, right? Because he's atoned for our sin. He, we are righteous now in him. And he has entered God's presence on our behalf. And one day will bring us into God's presence at his return so that we get to dwell with God forever because of what Christ has done for us. 
So what can we pray as we read Psalm 15? Well, we can ask God to help us be this kind of person. Now, we're never going to measure up to this perfectly like Jesus did, but but we want to get close, right? We want to grow in these things. So uh, we can go through those descriptions and ask God to make us the kind of person that Psalm 15 is describing. And then we can thank God that Jesus is the kind of person that Psalm 15 is describing and thank God that Jesus has entered uh, into God's presence on our behalf and uh, will one day bring us into that presence, as we said. And that's the day that we look forward to and long for. God bless.